This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWR. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And of course, my co-host is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. G'day again, Alan. Hi, Darren. First, we want to thank all of you who reached out over email and in person with positive feedback regarding our most recent episode, our so-called emergency analysis of PM Scott Morrison's Lowy Institute speech. Our discussion sparked some very strong sentiments among you on both sides of the debate, and it's very pleasing for us that you engaged with this topic in such depth. So today we want to do something a little bit similar in the sense of anchoring a discussion around a piece of writing by Alan that came out just a few weeks ago in the magazine Australian Foreign Affairs on the topic of China. So we thought we'd use this as an opportunity to have a long overdue discussion about China, not the news of the day in a minute, but a larger and more longer-term set of questions around how Australian foreign policy should be organised to meet this complex challenge. So to get started, Alan, the title of your piece is History Hasn't Ended, How to Handle China. And we are recording this on Monday, the 21st of October. And this past weekend, Prime Minister Morrison was in Jakarta for President Widodo's second inauguration. While there, he met with Chinese Vice President Wang Qishan in what the Prime Minister said was a very positive meeting. When asked about it, however, Morrison began by saying, quote, I think there is indeed a lot of over-analysis of these relationships, and whether it's the United States or China or anyone else, end quote. Alan, are you with your article, and indeed you and me both with this podcast, guilty of over-analysis? And in that context, why did you write this piece and what was your intended purpose? Uh, look, I'm not entirely sure what over-analysis <laughs> is. I think there's, you know, there's good analysis and there's uh, bad analysis. But if the PM is saying that this issue of Australia's relations with China and the United States is simple, nothing to see here, no binary choices, move on, then I respectfully disagree. I think it's a very complicated and important issue, and it is worth analysing. I wrote the article partly because I was, I was asked, and, <laughs> and, but when I was asked, I thought to myself, I need to work out what I think about this issue. It's so central to Australian foreign policy and to all the things I care about, and I was in danger, you know, as we all are, of simply responding ad hoc to issues as they came up. And for someone like me, writing is the best way of working out what I think about mm. something. So I did that. It was to make clear to myself what I thought. And, uh, you know, hopefully it'll help others, either by agreeing or disagreeing with it, to work out for themselves what they think. Mm. I think there's a, a very interesting idea in that comment, which is that in reacting constantly to the news of the day, 
there might be some kind of compound effect where reaction upon reaction upon reaction brings the discussion in a particular direction. And I think we might return to that theme later. Yeah, uh, but before right. we do, you know, let's get to the content of the article. Now, of course, our listeners should go and buy the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs for themselves and read the piece. But can you briefly summarise your argument for us? The title of the piece was set by the editor. I'd originally called it The Strangeness We Feel because that was a line from a Katie Lang song which just happened to be floating around in my <laughs> in my head all the time and I thought, yeah, that gets it. This is a really unusual time for Australia. We, we have never had to manage a relationship so important to us with a country so different in its history and language and culture and politics. We've never had a relationship like this, which is sort of simultaneously impinges on both foreign policy and, uh, and domestic policy. The, the relationship with Japan was, was and you know, remains a very important one, but it didn't have the dimension of domestic politics that we get from having one point two million Australians of Chinese heritage mm. or more properly, I guess, Chinese heritages uh, with us. So I wanted to uh, set out how these differences affect us and uh, how we should respond. And uh, the basic conclusion I come to is that the problem doesn't actually lie in policy. I think every government since Kevin Rudd's has had more or less the same approach to China. That is, China's rise has been beneficial to Australia, to the region, and of course to China itself. We welcome China's rise, but we want to ensure that the region and the world into which China rises is one in which all voices are heard and in which agreed rules are followed. So, you know, you can trace that absolutely through the statements of everyone from Kevin Rudd to Scott Morrison. Mm. Problem, I think, has been in its implementation. There's been a lack of consistency and coherence in the way it's been implemented. And there have been several occasions on which senior ministers have gone dramatically off-piste mm. and we've had to cope with consequences. I think that the way in which we uh, were seen to have bragged about leading the Five Eyes charge against Chinese mm. technology was one of those. Malcolm Turnbull's Australia has uh, stood up statement mm. was another. Uh, the debate about China is problematic in some ways here because there are different groups who talk about it in different ways. It's sometimes seen through the romantic prism of grand strategy. So you get Thucydides trap stuff and the Munich metaphors mm. and uh, and all of that. And that sort of excites... The chin-stroking so punditry. <laughs> the chin-stroking punditry, well said. Of course, there's an interesting dimension to that, but it's not the whole thing. Nor is the domestic interference the whole thing mm. about the relationship and nor is the fact that this remains overwhelmingly, China, that is, remains overwhelmingly our most important trading partner. So groups in the community tend to see it through these different sort of angles of view. And the argument I make in the uh, piece is that happily, 
we have available to us one element of statecraft whose sole purpose is to manage differences between states in the messy, contingent world of international politics, and that's uh, foreign policy. And the whole job of foreign policy is to weigh up interests and values to treat them as stakes in the overall relationship uh, which we have with the country and manage our way uh, through. But before we, I suppose, get to the policy settings themselves, I really liked how you characterised what you termed a sensible centrist consensus, which you said normally sort of forms amongst the foreign policy establishment. But on the China question, this consensus was being tested. So you've described you know, these grand strategic frames, you've described foreign interference frames, you've described economic dimension. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about sort of what explains the differing views. It, surely it's not as simple as security hawks versus economic doves or any other bird analogy. Do you have any reflections on why people argue what they do or, or what are the origins behind the different points of view and what Australia should do? Yeah, look, I, I think that's right. I think I think that we've moved beyond economic doves and security hawks dimension. The, the debate is much more messy and contested in, in different ways. One dimension of it is that both the right and the left broadly defined of politics, that is everyone from you know ABC and the unfair unfair to all uh, you know friends and colleagues in the ABC but sort of if you think about that as the sort of guardian or yes whatever is the left of politics and the right you have this sort of coordinated view that puts greater weight on values and the need for us to be seen to be doing something to stand up to China squeezing out the sort of middle ground of boring pragmatists in whom I would count myself. It's interesting. Do you think, though, those debates are sort of nibbling around the edges of the main issue? I mean, you've said that, again, by and large, the basic fundamental settings of Australian foreign policy towards China are are the right ones. Mm. And these debates had whether it's very important and serious debate about racism and, and, and ethnic framing of the debate or it's a question of five eyes and a particular security threat, that all of these are, are happening on the fringes. And because the people who are engaging in those debates probably also don't have much of a, an issue with the basic settings. They're not advocating, I don't see at least anyone articulating a, a radically different view from what we're doing right now. Sure, you can quibble with some of the execution as you've raised, and you can warn and indeed scold some of the more the lazy or the, some of the dangerous use of rhetoric or framing. But no one is calling for some wholesale reorientation. No one, I don't think, is, for example, saying we should walk away from the alliance entirely. No one is saying that we should decouple entirely from China. So I wonder, do you agree that there still seems to be a hidden consensus and that the, all of the heat that's being generated is sort of around the edges or am I missing something? No, no, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Certainly if you took during the last election the foreign policy speeches and policies of both government and Labor, really not all that much difference between them. I think there is a sort of a, a solid grounding around that core policy. That is, we need exactly what 
um, Morrison was saying in in uh, in Jakarta, mm. that is, you know, we need to engage, we welcome this, but we have our own set of interests and we will make those clear to, uh, to China. I often think in this uh, area that sort of psychological differences between optimists and pessimists explains as much as, as anything else. I'm an optimist and, you know, I think stuff will work out in the end if we put our mind to it. But there are plenty of pessimists around on both the sort of security and the values side of it who see a much uh, darker future. Mm. Well, if we can turn then sort of to more of the content of your piece, and in the article you described the core question, and I think you framed it very well, as can the ambitions of a growing China be reconciled with Australia's national interests and values? So I want to separate those two topics. One, the question of China's ambitions, and secondly, its reconciliation with Australia's interests and values. So if we start with ambitions, I took your piece when in the section on ambition, China's ambitions, to as very much you know, you describe the Chinese dream, you describe the ambitions of national rejuvenation and sort of, you know, responding to a century of humiliation. But more I felt like you were describing the interests of a typical major power. You know, not one that sort of where China is unique, but rather one that this is something that all major powers do and that Australia is sort of caught between these currents of major power politics. Is that a fair characterization? Do you see China as a, as a more normal major power or do, do you think it's something a bit different? Uh, no, I think it's fair characterization. I do think of China as a sort of fairly normal major power. I mean, we all bring our histories to this and core part of my working life was spent on the Cold War mm. and dealing with the uh, the Soviet Union. And in comparison with that, I do see China's interests as being much more familiar than those of the, uh, of the Soviet Union, where it wants to get its own way in the world at minimum cost to itself. It wants to advance its own interests. It wants to be held in respect and regard. But I don't think it wants to impose its system mm. on the rest of the world. I don't think it gives a damn, really, about what Australians or any, any other country do domestically. So mm. I think it, it's being quite honest when it says that. So, yeah, I would see it in a much more familiar and in some senses, therefore, reassuring mm. way than the world that I new in the 1980s. There is an interesting uh, debate in international relations theory, and listeners forgive me for diverging into the theoretical world for a moment, on whether any country's foreign policy is better explained by structural top-down features of where it is in the system and how constrained or unconstrained it is, or is it really a function of its own internal characteristics, you know, its domestic politics? My personal bias has always been to locate the sources of foreign policy more at the domestic level. And so if you were to follow that argument in the China case, it would be we don't have a normal you know, major power. We have an intensely fragile political system and a government, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, which is single-mindedly focused on one goal, remaining in power, retaining its authority and its legitimacy vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese people. 
and it, as a result, is a very nervous, a very anxious, paranoid power as a result. And it will respond to external events, not through the lens of of great power competition uh, and a broader sense of China's national interest in the great game of global politics, but in a very sensitive, hyper-paranoid way in reacting to perceived threats to its legitimacy. And so if you adopt that model, China is different. We can't think of it as a regular major power. And so I'm wondering, Alan, if you have any reflections as a practitioner about the distinction between what you have described as a familiar, almost reassuring major power activity and the sort of the opposing view, which is no, when we look at China's domestic politics and the way in which its governance is structured, we might see something that is that is, is more novel or different and have to react to it in a different way. I don't see that. I'm always very keen to hear the views of theorists uh, rather than practitioners, but that just doesn't make much sense to me. You said that the system was intensely fragile. Mm. I don't see intense fragility. I don't sort of pretend to be a a China scholar myself. My expertise is in Australian foreign policy. But none of the China scholars I know would, I think, see intense fragility. There is fragility, and I talk about that in the Australian foreign affairs uh, piece. I don't think that China is the superpower that it's sometimes portrayed to be. But for me, governments focusing on the goal of retaining their legitimacy is pretty par for the course. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know how you would uh, think of what current Australian government is doing, but I think that's a, a you know perfectly good. You want your governments mm. uh, to be trying to retain their uh, legitimacy. Mm. Yes, of course, there are dimensions of Chinese behaviour in the world that are shaped uh, intensely by the fact that they have this sort of Leninist command system and uh, all of that. But I don't see the evidence that that makes them unusually Mm. nervous or paranoid. Okay. The the kinds of examples I'm thinking of are in the press this past week, there was a story that the export of black clothing had been banned to Hong <laughs> Kong uh, because that's what the protesters would wear. Yeah. I think of censoring Winnie the Pooh because he, someone said he looked a bit like Xi Jinping. Now, and then, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, you have you know the concentration camps in, in Xinjiang, which, of course, is a domestic issue. Yeah. But th- there is an argument that the way in which China conducts its own internal affairs in such extreme ways might colour the way in which it acts abroad. And, and that makes people more nervous than they otherwise might. And so, again, maybe you might be right that all this is sort of noise and doesn't affect the fundamentals of, you know, the structural system um, and China's growing power, but still limited. Uh, but certainly it's it's hard when you see the news on a week-to-week basis, you see some absurd stories and you see some profoundly scary and depressing stories, not to, to view it through that lens. And I think it's, it, I guess, breaking out of that may be very important. I don't ask you to ignore those uh, stories. I don't expect you to ignore them, but I don't think that they therefore lead to Chinese actions in the world which are not going to, in the same way that every other great power's actions are, shaped by, governed by, constrained by, the actions and responses of others. Let's then turn to some more of those actions, because I think another way you could argue this point is that 
rather than focusing on, on China's domestic politics, you could think about how Chinese statecraft and Chinese foreign policy is enabled by the 21st century, by economic interdependence and, and technology. And in this telling, in the course of defending its own national interests, China acts in a way that not only challenges Australia's interests, but also threatens our core values in addition to our national security. And the example that's making the press in these past few weeks has been censorship. Examples are are mounting um, of private companies, and I'm thinking mostly of American companies right now, Apple, Disney, Tiffany's, Marriott Hotels, and indeed, you'd argue, most of Hollywood, who are taking actions that censor free speech, um, or in some cases even promote the, the Chinese government perspective as when the sports network ESPN showed a 10-dashed line over the South China Sea as a map of China on, on television. But of course, the biggest headlines in recent weeks have been generated by the US National Basketball Association, which has been grappling with the fallout after one of its employees tweeted support for the Hong Kong protesters. And that created a, a firestorm in which the, you know, the NBA has been dealing with for the past few weeks. And there's been an intense political discussion inside the United States about whether it's okay for you know the Chinese government to be censoring the free speech of American citizens. So th- this censorship debate has really come into the forefront of the public mind, I think, in the last few weeks, Alan. And you know, this has obviously happened since you wrote your piece. And I was wondering you know, if it's caused you to rethink anything that you wrote, or if you could just talk more broadly about how you think censorship or whether censorship fits into your argument overall. Look, I was interested in the, in the way you used the phrase threatens our values mm. there rather than acts in ways that are contrary to our own values. It doesn't seem to me that the uh, instances you gave uh, threaten um, our values. Our values are our values and, uh, and we should defend them as uh, strenuously as we can. 2017 foreign policy white paper. A lot of the the key speeches by Australian prime ministers make the point that our values are ours. They inform the way we engage with the world, but we're not trying to impose our values on other people. But when other people attack our values, we will respond. So all the instances uh, you gave were about companies, sporting groups and so on and how they should respond. That's entirely a matter for them. Should the AFL, for example, which has had a series of field games in Shanghai, Mm. should it be making statements about the situation in Hong Kong, Mm. do you think? I mean, what's your view on that? I don't think that AFL itself has a responsibility to speak out on every social issue. I think that any employee of the AFL, however, has the right to speak out if they so choose. And the concern and the reason I use the word threat to values is that the sort of the sword of Damocles, which is the economic punishment that would follow from an employee speaking out, as has happened in the NBA, uh, National Basketball Association case, Mm. causes um, those employees and presumably their masters to issue orders to this effect to keep their views to themselves. And so if you are causing Australians to silence themselves when they would otherwise speak out, then they're not able to live live their values and therefore their values have been harmed. That would be the way I would follow the chain of logic. And and would would that logic apply in your case to the way in which Australian companies uh, deal with Saudi Arabia, 
for example, or uh, the Middle East. Is it the role of companies to be articulating these values in that way? No, it's not the role of companies themselves. Hmm. It's the question of what happens when an individual feels strongly about the issue but happens to work for a company and in making their statement can bring down you know, the entire company with them. Well, here um, you are at Israel Folau, really. On, on free speech, yes, of course, people should be allowed to say what mm. they want. Mm. And it doesn't matter if it's Israel Folau or NRL or the NBA. But I'm just not quite sure what you want government to do about it. I'm with you on the importance of, of free speech. China is um, simply saying we don't like this, you know, we're not going to buy your mm-hmm. your um, product you know, en- product yes. anymore. Each company then needs to decide for itself uh, how it's going to respond, what it's going to require mm. of its uh, of its employees. But one thing we can't do is have the Australian government tell companies mm. what they should do because mm. that's exactly what we accuse China. Mm. Uh, of doing. Yeah. I think that's right. The tension I see is, is there a point where what the company does becomes so important to the fabric of society that perhaps more is needed? And I haven't come to that conclusion. But the thing that worries me more than, than what happened with the NBA or what happened with the Marriott Hotels or is Hollywood because of the, the fact that movie studios for their need to get uh, into the Chinese market and not even considering a whole range of different storylines. And because they're so central to sort of popular culture um, and to the public consciousness, I just wonder whether eventually you cross a threshold where more needs to be done. Now, that more might not be legislative orders. It might just be, as we have seen in the US, politicians just publicly calling out companies and shaming them. And that that might be enough. Um, I'm not. I, I haven't thought it through enough to know whether I want to do any more. And I I think I share your reluctance. Um, well, you're more than reluctant. You're, you feel very strongly, but I'm equally reluctant for governments to tell companies what to do. But you know, you see these news stories and you get nervous. And I guess that's that's what I'm grappling with. If I can move on, then if I sort of think about the overall tone of your argument. It seems to be that there has been a lot of extreme sensationalist reactions, and this sort of brings us back to what you said at the beginning about how you wanted to settle on what you actually believed, and my observation that perhaps public discourses, when it's a reaction on top of a reaction on top of a reaction, end up leading in a particular direction. I was interested in reading your article towards the end. You write, we need to be calm in the face of some of the hyperventilation and wilder claims about China. Uh, You say the PRC has become more authoritarian and and hostile to dissent, but it is not an Orwellian dystopia. Um, You say it's not engaging in debt trap diplomacy. Its influence in the South Pacific is growing, but it's not supplanting foreign aid. And so you're running through a list of what I suppose you're describing as hyperventilation and wilder claims about China. And what struck me is that each of those claims tended to skew in the hawkish direction. So that what you're identifying as being extreme reactions are all claims that would suggest policy responses that um, call for a tougher line on China, a more hawkish, a more closed, a more sceptical view. Would it be fair then to say that your concern with the public discourse is that it's veering too far in that direction, you know, in an overcorrection to the supposed, you know, threats posed by China rather than an under an undercorrection? 
I th- think that's probably fair enough, but I, I would say that it's, to go back to the point we began the podcast, it's a matter of, uh, you know, good or bad analysis. The issues that we talked about there, I mean, debt track diplomacy, um, the Lowy Institute has a, a report out uh, today looking at this in detail uh, in the uh, South Pacific. So I'm just saying that we need to ensure that all those sorts of claims are subject to examination and some of them will be true, some of them won't be true, but we're not well served by anything other than calmness in the face of this rapid change all around us. And so the central policy prescription that I have, I guess, is really calm down, deep breath, welcome Mm. to the new world. Mm. It just makes me wonder whether or not the nature of the 24-hour news cycle and the fact that sensational, scary stories make for great news and and current affairs programs means that overall discourse is biased in a particular direction and that bias needs to be something that policymakers are sort of conscious of rather than the opposite, which is you know, an undervaluing or underweighting of, the, of these concerns. I think that's true. And I um, mean, we've, we've talked often enough on the podcast, Darren, about uh, social media. And, mm. uh, and again, we've reflected before on, for someone not on social uh, media, the different worlds that you and I sometimes inhabit mm-hmm. because things arise and surge and agitate and claims are made and dashed or fulfilled within a, in a short period. Mm-hmm. And I'm totally oblivious to, <laughs> to, to all these things that have been uh, happening. So I suppose it's sort of, it's a bit of self-justification here. That, on that might be the most concrete <laughs> policy recommendation to come out of this, Alan, which is get off social media and don't watch, you know, sensationalist <laughs> news uh, news programs. Okay, let's just have one final question. Uh, and for this, I'd like you to put on your old Lowy executive director hat on uh, because you do mention in your piece um, that the revamped National Foundation for Australia-China Relations, as announced by the government back in March, has got this pot of money, $44 million over five years, to do something to improve uh, to improve the, the relationship. How would you spend the money? It's a very good development and, you know, the government should be congratulated for it, but it's not $11 million a year is not a huge amount to do what they are trying to do, which is, um, Maurice Payne said, I think, in the, in the announcement to turbocharge uh, the relationship and to, uh, to in, engage everything from, you know, the traditional areas of cultural exchanges and so on to uh, health and ageing and, uh, and energy. So there's, you know, huge, a lot of things to do with what's not all that enormous an amount of, uh, of money. So, look, the only thing I can say, and, um, you know, Warwick Smith, who's, uh, who's uh, chairing the mm. new uh, foundation, is very experienced in China... Uh, is to give the money to projects that will actually engage with Chinese partners. So it'll be, you know, for me, the money will be best spent if it brings together groups of Australians and groups of Chinese from these different uh, uh, areas Mm. to to understand more about, about each other. Okay. Well, let's turn, as always, to our final 
segment of the podcast, reading, listening, and watching. Alan, what have you been reading, listening, or watching lately? Given that a lot of our discussion today has been about values, I really recommend a book I've just finished called A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism, uh, by the wonderful uh, essayist for The New Yorker, Adam Gopnik. I don't know if you've uh, read any of his stuff, but there's virtually nothing that he can't write engagingly about. Mm -hmm. And this is a beautifully written defense of the philosophical tradition that I identify with myself, but in the proper way of uh, liberals, Gopnik tests its claims soundly and fairly against the critiques of authoritarianism and conservatism on the right and radicalism in its different varieties on the Left, So it's an elegant refresher course on where the values of, you know, free speech, representative democracy, rule of law, racial and gender equality that we define as Australia's national values, where they come from and, uh, and how they need to be defended. Right. Well, at, at the risk of inviting uh, ridicule from our listeners, I'm going to recommend a romantic comedy, a rom-com that I watched on the plane recently called Yesterday, um, which is a movie directed by Danny Boyle, who directed Slumdog Millionaire, Train Spotting, and, and The Beach. And it was written by uh, Richard Curtin, who wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, uh, and The Blackadder, Mr. Bean TV series. You are, you are an old romantic, aren't you, <laughs> I've noticed this about you. <laughs> so it's delightfully funny, um, but also as someone who thinks about work-life balance and burnout and, and workaholism, the movie sort of takes a surprising turn about three quarters of the way through and, and makes a very clear argument on these questions, which I quite appreciated. And if nothing else, um, there's lots of Beatles music in it. So I think it's, it's, you know, there's something for everybody. Anyway, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AAA intern James Hayne for his help with research and audio editing and XC Chong for research support. And of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thank you and talk to you again soon.